This program is made possible by BibleWayMedia.org, overseen by the Uloga Church of Christ in Uloga, Oklahoma. You're listening to Opening the Scriptures with Don Boyd. This is Don Boyd with the Moody Church Christ. I want to thank you for tuning in to Opening the Scriptures. We're going to be studying today in the book of Job, beginning in chapter 12. Uh, Zophar has just finished blasting Job for his supposed evil life, and he pleaded with Job to repent. Now, Job is going to answer Zophar and Eliphaz and uh, Bildad, which will end the first cycle of speeches. Job is going to address his friends in chapter 12 and then chapter 13 down to verse 19. Then Job is going to turn his focus to God and address him in chapter 13, verse 20, through verse 22 there, the end of the chapter, chapter 14. Well, first of all, Job says, God has done this, and that's in verses 1 through 25 of chapter 12. So Job first of all, sarcastically answers his three friends in Job 12, 1 and 2. And Job answered and said, No doubt but ye are the people, and wisdom shall die with you. Job's telling them they must be the wisest men in the world, and all wisdom is concentrated in their brains. He tells them that when they die, there will be no more wisdom found on the face of the earth. In verse 3, Job tells his friends that there's nothing new about what they're saying. Verse 3 says, But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Yea, who knoweth not such things as these? So Job informs them that he doesn't fall short of them in any wisdom, understanding, learning, or experience. And he admonishes them that anyone can know what they're claiming to know. And then in verses 4 through 6 of Job 12, Job says that his friend's theory about evil and suffering does not fit the facts. This is verses 4 through 6. I am as one mocked of his neighbor, who calleth upon God, and he answereth him. The just upright man is laughed to scorn. He that is ready to slip with his feet is as a lamp despised in the thought of him that is at ease. The tabernacle of robbers prosper, and they that provoke God are secure, into whose hand God bringeth abundantly. So Job is saying here, the righteous man is a laughing stock, mocked by you and held in contempt while you sit in a comfortable position. Job says, my foot has slipped and I have fallen into misfortune. Well, Job felt that he was being persecuted by God for a wrong that he had not committed. Albert Barnes states this in his commentary on Esword. A man in prosperity is represented as standing firm. 
one in adversity as wavering or falling, see Psalm 73, verse 2, unquote. Well, let's go to Psalm 73, and we're going to look at verses 2 and 3, and then verses 16 and 17. Psalm 73, 2 and 3. This is Asaph speaking. It says, But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped, for I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then drop down to verses 16 and 17. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then understood I their end. Well, the lives of the wicked do appear to prosper. You've got a lot of people who seem like they're rich, they're happy, they have everything they would ever want. But it seems that way because in the end, things are going to be turning out for the righteous. Well, Adam Clark said this, and I quote, and this is in his commentary in Esau. Those who live by the plunder of their neighbors are often found in great secular prosperity. And they that provoke God by impiety and blasphemy live in a state of security and affluence, unquote. Kyle and Delich said in their commentary in Esword, the perception in which you pride yourselves I also possess. True, I am an object of scornful contempt to you who are as little able to understand the suffering of the godly as the prosperity of the godless. Nevertheless, what you know, I also know, unquote. So Job is saying that his friends are all wrong in what they're trying to say. And then Job illustrates that God's wisdom is shown in God's providential activities in nature. That is Job 12, 7, and 8. Job 12, 7, and 8. <clears throat> but ask now the beast, and they shall teach thee, and the fowls of the air, and they shall tell thee. Or speak to the earth, and it shall teach thee. And the fishes of the sea shall declare unto thee. So Job is saying here that God is the creator, and he is the sustainer of the universe. Again, quoting Kyle and Delich, the working of God, which infinitely transcends human power and knowledge, is the sermon which is continuously preached by all created beings. They all proclaim the omnipotence and wisdom of the Creator. Unquote. Well, Job then says, Who does not know? that God has done all this in Job chapter 12, verse 9. Job 12, 9. Who knoweth not all these things, that the hand of the Lord hath wrought this? You go over into the New Testament to Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. It says, because that which may be known of God 
is manifest in them, that being human beings, those who, verse 18 says, hold or suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Anyway, for God, verse, the end of verse 19, for God has showed it unto them, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. They're without excuse not to believe that there's a God because everything is shown. So here we see, you know, everybody knows God's done this. They just may not admit it. You know, even the atheist has to believe in some kind of a God because if they do not believe there is a God, then they themselves must be God. If they know there is no God, then they themselves must be God because they have all knowledge. Well, Job, or Job then states in Job 12.10 that God gives life to all. Job 12.10 is whose hand is the soul of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. You go over to the book of Daniel, chapter 5, there in verse 23, David is speaking to King Belshazzar, he tells us in verse 22. Verse 23 says, But hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before thee, and thou and thy lords, thy wives, and thy concubines have drunk wine in them, and thou hast praised the gods of silver and gold, of brass, iron, wood, and stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know. And the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways, hast thou not glorified. God holds the breath of every individual in his hand. He gives life to all. Well, Job says next there in Job 12, 11 and 12, that history destroys what his friends have been saying. You know, you've been relying back on history to try to prove what you're saying, but you look at it, history destroys that. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. Doth not the ear try words and the mouth taste is meat? With the ancient is wisdom and in length of days, understanding. So Job is saying here that his friends have said nothing new because anyone can see God's work in the world. And then concerning that phrase, wisdom of the ancients, Adam Clark stated this, and I quote, men who have lived in those primitive times when the great facts of nature were recent, such as the creation, fall, flood, confusion of tongues, migration of families, and consequent settlement of nations, had much knowledge from those facts and their length of days, the many hundreds of years to which they lived, and gave them such an opportunity of accumulating wisdom by experience that they are deservedly considered as oracles." Unquote. Well, Job then, in Job 12, 13 to 25, he's going to give a list of how great God is. 
verse 13, he says, God is the source of wisdom and power. Verse 13, with him is wisdom and strength. He hath counsel and understanding. So God's counsel and understanding are as absolute as his wisdom and power. In verse 14, Job says, God alone can create and destroy completely. Verse 14, Behold, he breaketh down, and it cannot be built again. He shutteth up a man, and there can be no opening. Again, quoting Adam Clark here, No power, skill, or cunning of man can annihilate the smallest particle of matter. Man, by chemical agency, may change its form but to reduce it to nothing belongs to God alone. In the course of his providence, God breaks down so that it cannot be built up again. See proofs of this in the total political destruction of Nineveh, Babylon, Persepolis, Tyre, and other cities which have been broken down never to be rebuilt, as well as the Assyrian, Babylonian, Grecian, and Roman empires, which have been dismembered and almost annihilated, never more to be regenerated, unquote. And then Job says in Job twelve fifteen, God can withhold the waters or he can let them cover the earth. Job twelve fifteen, Behold, he withholdeth the waters and they dry up. Also he sendeth them out, and they overturn the earth. So you go over to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17. There we see that Elijah prayed that it would not rain. Verse 1. Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be rain nor uh, dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. So Job, excuse me, Job, Elijah prayed there that it would not rain. And you go over to James chapter 5, verse 17. James chapter 5. Verse 17, it says there, Elias, who is Elijah, was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed, excuse me, earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. So God can withhold the rain. And then in verse 18 here of James 5, it says, And he, that being Elijah, prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. We also want to go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 1, and verse 9. Genesis, chapter 1, down in verse 9. It said, And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. So right there, God allowed the water to be in its place. 
And then we go over to Genesis chapter 7, verse 19. Genesis 7, 19. And it says there, in the flood time of Noah, the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. So just as Job said here in verse 15 of Job chapter 12, he withholdeth the waters, they dry up, we saw that. He sendeth them out, and they overturn the earth, we saw that as well. That is within God's power. Now, in verse 16 of Job 12, Job says that God is the infinite source of strength and wisdom. Job 12, 16. With him is strength and wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver are his. So Job is just saying God is self-existent. God is self-sufficient. And all classes of people are under God's control. And they are dependent on him and subject to him. Whether they believe that or not, they are subject to God. Well, in verse 17 of Job 12, the counsels of great men do not avail against God. Verse 17 says, He leadeth counselors away spoiled, and maketh the judges fools. So God destroys the power and prestige of counselors, the wisdom of judges and such as that. God does that. And then in verse 18 of Job 12, God frees those who kings have bound or the kings who are bound and binds the kings as well. Verse 18. He looseth the bond of kings and he girdeth their loins with a girdle. So in other words, God there takes things away from those who mankind trusts. And then in verse 19, God takes wealth and riches away from great men and overthrows chieftains. Job 12, 19. He leadeth princes away, spoiled, and overthroweth the mighty. Well, again, God destroys power and prestige of counselors and judges. He also takes away things from those who mankind trusts, their princes and the mighty would be referring there to kings. And then also God removes the counsel of the aged and the experienced. And that is verse 20 of Job 12. He removeth away the speech of the trusty and taketh away the understanding of the aged. Albert Barnes in his commentary on East Sword said here, and I quote, The meaning here is that they who were accustomed to give wise and sound advice, if left by God, give vain and foolish counsels, unquote. Well, then Job says that God has the power to overthrow princes and overwhelm them with disgrace in verse 21 of Job 12. He poureth contempt upon princes and weakeneth the strength of the mighty. 
So in other words, the power of God is greater than the power of men. It just simply means God is in charge. And God has infinite knowledge. Job 12, 22. He discovereth deep things out of the darkness and bringeth out to light the shadow of death. Again, quoting Albert Barnes. That is, God discloses truths which are wholly beyond the power of man to discover, truths that seem to be hidden in profound night. This may refer either to the revelation which God was believed to have furnished, or to his power of bringing out the most secret thoughts and purposes, or to his power of predicting future events by bringing them out of darkness to the clear light of day or to his power of detecting plots, intrigues, and conspiracies, unquote. God knows all. He has infinite knowledge. And then Job says in Job twelve twenty three, God controls nations. Job twelve twenty three, He increaseth the nations and destroyeth them. He enlargeth the nations and straighteneth them again. In Daniel chapter 4 now, Daniel chapter 4, verse 32. Daniel chapter 4, verse 32. Here speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel says, And they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. And they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, seven times shall pass over thee until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. So right there, God controls the nations. And in verses 24 and 25 of Job 12, Job says that God frustrates the plans of great people. Job 12, 24 and 25. He taketh away the heart of the chief of the people of the earth and causeth them to wander in the wilderness where there is no way. They grope in the dark without light, and he maketh them to stagger like a drunken man. Quoting Albert, uh, excuse me, Adam Clark here, that the nations themselves and the heads or sovereigns of the nations are all and equally in the hands of the Almighty, that with him human pomp is poverty, human excellence, uh, turpitude, which is depravity, human judgment, error, human wisdom is folly, human dignity is contempt, human strength is weakness. Compared to God, humans are, as one writer put it, as grasshoppers. And then Albert Barnes, quoting him, Job had showed them that he was familiar with Proverbs respecting God as they were, and that he entertained as exalted ideas of the control of government of the Most High, the Most High speaking of God, as they did, unquote. In other words, I know what you know. I agree with some of the things that you, well, I agree with what you said about God but they're misapplying the facts, and they're misapplying their data. Well, in chapter 13, verses 1 to 28, 
Job says he will still hope in God. Job declares in verses 1 and 2, he knows as much as his friends do, and they have not proven their case against him. Chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Lo, mine eye hath seen all this, mine ear hath heard and understood it. What ye know, the same do I know also. I am not inferior unto you. I'm not inferior. You have not proven your case. You know, it looks like they're trying to look at Job and say, uh, one of those, what do they call those people? Those that believe they're holier than thou. Well, that's what Job is saying, and you have not proven that. In verse 3, Job said he would rather take his case before God than before those friends. Verse 3, chapter 13. Surely I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to reason with God. Well, Albert Barnes here said, and I quote, he felt that God would appreciate the arguments which he would urge and would do justice to them. His friends, he felt, were censorious, in other words, censoring him, and severe. They neither did justice to his feelings nor to his motives. They perverted his words and arguments, and instead of consoling him, they only aggravated his trials and caused him to sink into deeper sorrows. But he felt if he could carry his cause to God, he would do ample justice to him and his cause, unquote. Well, Job says his friends are not telling the truth in what they're saying, and they're of no help. And this is chapter 13, verse 4. He says, but ye are forgers of lies. You are all physicians of no value. So right there, you know, he just basically saying, if you can't say anything to comfort me, then just keep your mouth shut. Be quiet. All you're doing is forging lies. And then in verse 5, Job says if his friends would just be quiet. Well, I want to go back there on verse 4 before I forget to. I want to quote Albert Barnes there. He says, They maintained false positions. They did not see the exact truth in, in, to, in respect to the divine dealings and to the character of Job. They maintained strenuously that Job was a hypocrite and that God was punishing him for his sins. They maintain that God deals with people in exact accordance with their character in this world, all of which Job regarded as false doctrine and asserted that they defended it with sophistical arguments invented for the purpose. And thus they could be spoken of as forgers of lies, unquote. Well, Job's friends came to comforting but nothing they have said is of any comfort to him yet. They're like physicians that are sent for to help the sick, and then they were unable to do anything when they got there. Well, then in chapter 13, verse 5, Job tells his friends, just be quiet, and if you'll do that, it'll show your wisdom. Job 13, 5. Oh, that ye would altogether hold your peace, 
and it should show your wisdom. Go to Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and look at verse 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 7. It says, there is a time to rend and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. Job is telling his friends here, it's time for you to keep silence. If you can't say anything good, don't say anything at all. Well, Job then tries to appeal to them as a friend to get them to listen to him. Chapter 13, verse 6. Hear now my reasoning and hearken to the pleadings of my lips. Please listen. Pay attention to what I'm saying. You know, all too often, and it could be the case here for some of this, we're trying to think about what we're going to say next while the other person is talking. We're not even paying any attention to them. Job saying, please pay attention to what I'm saying. Listen to my arguments before you accuse me anymore. In verse 7 of chapter 13, Job ridicules their supposed ability to make out the will and workings of God. Job 13, 7. Will ye speak wickedly for God and talk deceitfully for him? You know, they've They've tried to contend for God without knowing what God's doing. Job is telling them to represent God correctly. You'll do it right. And then Job declares that his friends are defending God wrongly because of their partiality. That's Job 13, 8. Will ye accept his person? Will ye contend for God? Quoting Albert Barnes here, he says, Their position was that God dealt with people strictly according to their character, and that no matter what they suffered, their sufferings were the exact measure of their ill desert. Against this position, they would hear nothing that Job could say, and they maintained it by every kind of argument which was at their command whether sound or unsound, sophistical or solid. Job says that this was showing partiality for God and he felt that he had a right to complain, unquote. Now we hear this word sophistical, sophisticated or sophisticate. Webster's 1828 dictionary gives a great definition for sophisticate. And that is not genuine, not pure. And all you have to do is look at those who claim sophistication or to be sophisticated. It fits. It fits perfectly. To continue that definition, I'll give you the whole definition here. This is Webster's 1828 definition of sophisticate. To adulterate to corrupt by something spurious or foreign, to pervert, not pure, not genuine. And that fits sophistication perfectly. Well, Job warns his friends to proceed with caution. 
Job 13, 9. Is it good that he should search you out? Or as one mocketh another, do ye so mock him? Job asked them, would it be well for them if God investigated their character and their arguments that they were making? You know, you can, they can hide their thoughts and motives from others, but they cannot hide them from God, and neither can we. Well, Job warns his friends that if they show partiality, they will be convicted by God. <clears throat> Job 13, 10. He will surely reprove you if ye do secretly accept persons. Job is telling them to base their decisions on principle, excuse me, on principle instead of partiality. They think they're on God's side in this argument, but they're not. Well, Job tells them in Job 13, 11, God's majesty should terrify them. Job 13, 11. Shall not his excellency make you afraid and his dread fall upon you? Albert Barnes here stated this concerning the verse, and I quote, you should so stand in awe of him as not to advance any sentiments which he will not approve or will not bear the test of examination, unquote. Watch what you are saying. In other words, be careful here. Well, Job says that the memorable sayings or proverbs that Job's friends have been using against him are useless. Job 13, 12. Your remembrances, the American Standard Version says, memorable sayings are like unto ashes, your bodies to bodies of clay. Uh, the American Standard Version there says, your defenses are defenses of clay. Albert Barnes says that this is what Job is saying, and I quote, that is, your high-flown speeches are dark, involved, and incoherent. They are, all, they are all sound. No sense, great swelling words, either of difficult or no meaning, or of no point as applicable to my case, unquote. So Job then instructs his friends to leave him alone, and he will bring his arguments before God and accept the consequences of his actions. Jaron Job 13, 13. Hold your peace. Let me alone that I may speak and let come on me what will. Well, his friends have perverted the truth. Their arguments against Job are totally irrelevant, and it is time for them to stop their hounding of Job. Well, verse 14, the year of Job 13, Job says he is willing to put his life in his own hands and risk everything for the justice of his cause. Job 13, 14. Wherefore do I take my flesh in my teeth 
and put my life in mine hand. Rosenmuller there says concerning this, and I quote him, the proverb he supposes is taken from the contest which so frequently takes place between dogs and other carnivorous quadrupeds when one of them is carrying a bone or a piece of flesh in his mouth, which becomes a source of dispute and a prize to be fought for, unquote. So he's comparing what his friends are doing to him as taking flesh in their teeth. But he's also saying there, I put my life in my own hand. Well, he says in verse 15, even if God kills me with this disease, Job says he will trust God and maintain his cause. Job 13:15. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him, but I will maintain mine own ways before him. Job is saying that he will remain firm in his defense that he is not a wicked man and he will maintain his integrity and he will be faithful to God. Job then declares that God will save him because he says, I am not the hypocrite you accuse me of being in verse 16. He also shall be my salvation. For a hypocrite shall not come before him. Job believes here that if he could present his case before God, that God would find him not guilty. Well, in verse 17, verses 17 and 18, Job tells his friends to listen to the declaration he has made concerning his innocence. Pay attention, in other words. Job 13, 17, and 18. Hear diligently my speech and my declaration with your ears. Behold now, I have ordered my cause. I know that I shall be justified. Job is confident in his cause. He is confident that God will declare him innocent. And Job then says, let his accuser come forward, and he will defend his cause against him. Verse 19 of Job 13. Who is he that will plead or contend with me? The American Standard says. For now, if I hold my tongue, I shall give up the ghost. Albert Barnes explains the verse this way. Quote, the Hebrew, however, is, for now I will be silent and die. That is, I have maintained my cause, I will say no more. If there is anyone who can successfully contend with me and can prove that my course cannot be vindicated, then I have no more to say. I will be silent and die. I will submit my, to my fate without any further argument and without a complaint. I have said all that needs to be said and nothing would remain but to submit and die, unquote. So he's just saying, there's nothing that you can say, nothing you have said that condemns me 
truthfully, but I will just, you know, I maintain my cause. If there's anyone who can show me I'm wrong, I'll be quiet. I'll be content and I'll die. But it's at this point, God stops talking to his friends and he turns his attention to God. This is Job 13, 20. He says, only do not two things unto me, then will I not hide myself from thee. So he's speaking to God here. He's finished his reply to Zophar and Bildad and Eliphaz. He begins to address God. And he believes if he could present his case before God, that God would vindicate him of being evil. And that's what we said there in verse 18. Behold, now I have ordered my cause. I know that I shall be justified. Well, Job wants God to agree to two conditions to present his case before God. We read verse 20. Let's go on and read verses 20 and 21 together. Only do not two things unto me, then I will not hide myself from thee. Withdraw thine hand from me, and let not thy dread make me afraid. The first condition that Job sets forth is that God will remove the punishment, the disease that Job is currently enduring. Albert Barnes said concerning this, he wished to be free to present his cause without the impediments arising from a deeply distressing and painful malady. He wished to have his full intellectual and bodily vigor restored for a time to him. Then he was confident that he could successfully defend himself, unquote. So withdraw that hand from me. The second condition is that God will not overpower him with his majesty. Now, quoting Albert Barnes concerning this, Job felt that God had power to overawe him. And he asked, therefore, that he might have a calm and composed mind, and then he would be able to do justice to his own cause, unquote. So Job is saying he cannot present his case in a calm and composed manner if God doesn't do these two conditions, if God doesn't agree to these two conditions. Well, in verse 22, he says, if God agrees to these two conditions, then Job suggests that God can prosecute and Job will defend or vice versa. Job will prosecute and God will defend. Chapter 13, verse 22. Then call thou me and I will answer, or let me speak and answer thou me. You see, Job wants God to bring his case, wants to bring his case before God, and either Job wants to be the defendant or the prosecutor there. Job wants an explanation from God as to why this is happening to him. But later on in the book, when we get to the end of the book, Job will realize that he deserves no answer. 
Well, Job pleads with God to show him his sins and stop treating him like an enemy. That's Job 13, 23, and 24. How many are mine iniquities and sins? Make me to know my transgression and my sin. Wherefore hidest thou thy face and holdest me for thine enemy? Albert Barnes says concerning this, quote, Job takes the place of the plaintiff or accuser. He opens the cause. He appeals to God to state the catalog of his crimes or to bring forward his charges of guilt against him, unquote. So Job wants to know what is he so guilty of that brings so much punishment down upon him? Well, Job wants to know why God has turned away his approval of Job. Or why have you turned your back on me? Well, in verse 25, Job wonders why God would spend so much effort on him when he is so insignificant. Verse 25 there of Job 13. Wilt thou break a leaf driven to and fro? And wilt thou pursue the dry stubble? So Job compares himself to a leaf that is driven by the wind, dry stubble that is insignificant. Job believes that he is not worthy of God to pursue him who is so incapable of offering any resistance at all. Well, in verse 26 of Job 13, Job accuses God of writing venomous and poisonous things against him and holding him accountable for the sins of his youth. Chapter 13, verse 26. For thou writest bitter things against me, and thou makest me to possess the iniquities of my youth. Albert Barnes here states this. Rosenmuller remarks that the word write here is a judicial term referring to the custom of writing the sentence of a person condemned, unquote. Joe feels that the charges are being drawn up in a court against him. Job thinks God is going back over the records of his life to find something to prosecute him for. Well, in verse 27, Job accuses God of treating him harshly. 13, Job 13, 27. Thou puttest my feet also in the stocks and lookest narrowly unto all my paths. Thou settest a print upon the heels of my feet. Albert Barnes describes the stocks here, and I quote him. They consisted of a frame with holes for the feet only, or for the feet and the hands, or for the feet, the hands, and the neck. At Pompeii, stocks have been found so contrived that ten prisoners might be chained by the leg, each leg separately by the sliding of a bar, unquote. 
and then describing what Job said about God looking narrowly at his, at his paths, Barnes states this, and I quote, probably the allusions to the paths by which he might escape. God watched or observed every way as a sentinel or guard would a prisoner who was hampered or clogged and who would make an attempt to escape, unquote. Now, there are a lot of different opinions as to what the mark on his feet or his heels there refers to, but it probably refers to the mark left on the feet by the stocks or the mark left on the feet by the clogs an owner would place on a runaway slave. And then chapter 13, verse 28, Job compares himself to something that is decayed and a garment that is moth-eaten. Verse 28, And he, as a rotten thing, consumeth, as a garment that is moth-eaten. The American Standard Version says, though I am like a rotten thing, consumed as a garment that is moth-eaten. So Job here considers himself to be in God's stocks rotting away, which could be a reference to the shape that his body is in. Well, right now, this looks like a good place for us to end our discussion in Job today. We'll end here at the end of chapter 13. And Lord willing, next time we'll begin there in chapter 14. And then we will go on through the discussion there that Eliphaz the Temanite has in our next lesson, Lord willing. Again, this is Don Boyd with the Moody Church of Christ. I want to thank you for being with us today today, and we look forward to being with you next time. When you're in Moody, Missouri, you're invited to visit the Moody Church of Christ, located on Highway E in Moody, Missouri. The congregation there meets on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. for Bible class, 11 a.m. for worship, and then again at 6 p.m. for Sunday evening worship. They also meet at 6 p.m. on Wednesday night for Bible study. We thank you for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed this program. You can find out more about Bible Media by visiting us at BibleWayMedia.org. You can also find us on several uh, social media platforms now. You can find us not only on Facebook, but you can also can find us on Tumblr. You can also find us on the Twitter alternative known as Telegram, and on the Facebook alternative known as MeWe. We hope you enjoyed this program. We hope you will share with others. And as always, we thank you for listening.